Hello, and welcome to Break the Line, the podcast where we talk with guests about topics in contemporary poetry. The catch? The guests aren't poets. I'm your host and resident poet, Rebecca Faravar. This month, I discussed documentary poetics with two journalists, Julie Kane and Connie Hale. Julie Kane is a radio journalist who reports for a San Francisco-based public radio station, KALW, and who has also produced several radio documentaries, most recently a documentary called Squeezebox Stories on the Social History of the Accordion. Connie Hale is a freelance journalist who writes for newspapers such as the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, and Miami Herald, as well as magazines like The Atlantic, Smithsonian, and National Geographic Adventure. She is also the author of three books on language, most recently Vex, Hex, Smash, Smooch, which tells the story of the verb. We focus the conversation on two poems from documentary projects. First, we discuss the poem On the Lessening of Free World Ties by the poet C.D. Wright from her book One Big Self, published by Copper Canyon Press in 2003. For this project, Wright joined photographer Deborah Luster, visiting four prisons in Louisiana and interviewing the prisoners. Wright then took those conversations and experiences and presented them as poetry in this collection. Next, we discussed the seventh poem from the series Capitalization by Mark Novak, found in his book Shut Up, Shut Down, published by Coffee House Press in 2004. The poems in this collection are collages of newspaper reports, interviews, and other text. Okay, let's get to the poems. I wanted to first start, since we're talking about documentary poetics today, to find out from, from you, had you heard that term before? Like, Julie, when I contacted you about documentary poetics, did you understand what that meant? And um, if not, you know, as you've read these poems, what is sort of your understanding of what documentary poetics are? I hadn't ever heard of that term before, but I feel like I make poetic documentaries Mm -hmm. and so I could understand it in a in a sort of a you know a a flipped version and I mean what I understand is that these are these are based on real events or or interviews or the words of real people and there's sort of a story that's being told. Bonnie how about you had you heard about documentary poetics before and you know, how how would you describe it? I had never heard of it before, and I have no idea how to describe <laughs> it. Even having read these poems, I do not how to know how to describe it. Well, let's see. Um, deconstructing this this label of documentary poetics, the idea is that they tend to be larger projects, and they involve some kind of journalistic aspect. So, taking real text, as we'll see in the Mark Novak poem, or um, as the case of uh, C.D. Wright in One Big Self, she actually did journalism work. You know, she went, she interviewed prisoners in Louisiana. She went with a photographer. So that that's kind of what we mean by documentary poetics: that there's actual footwork that the poet's done in some case to do a, a journalistic effort. Louis Zukofsky is one example. He wrote a series of books called Testimony, where he took testimonies that were just recorded in, you know, lawyer books, and he broke them up and really highlighted some of the more interesting or, you know, particularly violent or shocking cases. And it, and that was all taken exactly verbatim, right? So that's kind of the interesting thing here is this interaction with real text or real people, you know, or text that existed in a different way when we talk about these. Why don't we go ahead, we'll start with talking about One Big Self by C.D. Wright. Julie, could you read the poem for us? 
on the lessening of free world ties. The caller can see the phone ringing in its cradle, see the light pour to the tiled floor, the magazines heaped by the door, the old zinnias in a pepper jar, the leftovers, the dog's bowl, the unread letters, can almost make out the handwriting, almost certain it is her own. The men like the young and the restless. Some of us be rooting for the bad guys and some of us be rooting for the good. George. Some of us just be rooting from the turn row. The women like Guiding Light. The women like Nora Roberts and John Le Carre. The men like Danielle Steele and Louis L'Amour. Everybody likes Jackie Collins. The men's units are named for animals and trees. They keep the young ones in eagle until they get a face on them. The women's units are named for signs of the zodiac. Capricorn is locked down. That's my sign. She misses her clematis. He misses his dogs. What they hold in common, their poverty. More than cold, I dislike heat. If the governor would release me to Alaska, I would promise never again to come anywhere near this state for any reason whatsoever. Favorite body of water, Arctic Ocean. My idea of a good car, anything that is fast, solid, and bulletproof. I can identify Queen Cassiopeia, can't spell her name, Orion's Belt, the Dippers, Seven Sisters. I detest okra. Willie. Great, thank you. Maybe we can just point it out for the listeners. Uh, when you look at the page, we have this chunk of text, and then we have the different sort of fragments. Um, and then also, one thing that's interesting is some of the fragments, as when Julie read, are, are tagged with a person's name, right? So we get a sense of a quote there. Some of them aren't, <laughs> you know, but they switch, they, they start to sound like someone new, right? Because it says, I, and this is where maybe sometimes the confusion comes in, because it's using the I. Uh, however, it, it sounds like it must be a different person that we haven't even met yet. We have all these different voices. And then to add on top of that, some of the lines are in italics, which suggest a quote as well in a different voice. So we definitely have this mixing of quotes coming in and throughout and, and these many different, different voices coming in. Julie, did you have a reaction to these different voices entering the text? Was that disorienting for you? It was when I first read it, yeah. What was disorienting? to me overall and is that I think of prisoners as men and so I think that is what not threw me off in the beginning and it's a nice thing actually because you're sort of thrown off about gender right away and then the ne very next thing that happens is the men like the young and the restless <laughs> and so that's actually kind of lovely and then it's just this kind of then you're kind of just led into this parallel you're kind of hearing what do the men like, what do the women like, what are the men's units called, what are the women's units called. I mean, it's lovely. And then as you go, you finally find that she misses her clematis and he misses his dogs and what they hold in common, their poverty. So I think that you finally kind of get a whole. You do, and that's that's great. Um like what you just said, you get a whole, and of course the title of the collection is One Big Self. And that's sort of what this project is working on, and I guess getting towards the reporting or the journalistic element here. We have all these different quotes from all these different people, but they're all being filtered in through the poet's voice in a way. And so on one hand, it's many different voices. 
On the other hand, it does form a whole because it's coming through the poet, the narrator, the journalist, so to speak, right? And and she seems to definitely acknowledge that and be aware of that because in some ways the, the quotes are acknowledged, in some ways they're not acknowledged. Sometimes it feels like there's an outside voice coming in, sometimes it's an authentic voice. So it's kind of a struggle in the text how these quotes are being presented and filtered, how, how they're reported by the poet in this case. Um, it's just one to, I don't talk about that in your own work as journalist and seeing it here in the poem, how do you handle your own voice in writing? And is that maybe comparable to how the poet is handling it here? The use of her, herself essentially, right? Herself as a filter of the information. She's very much a part of the reporting, right? So for you as a journalist, how do you enter the text and how do you handle you know, presenting other people's voices? This is a really interesting question to me because I I consider myself a narrative journalist. So I'm working, I, I mean, I, I have been a news reporter and I have been someone who's very practiced in the detached, anonymous voice of uh, the newspaper reporter. And, and yet as a narrative journalist, you're constantly thinking about what the voice of the, what your voice is in the story and and this notion of, of stories having a narrator, which is often not true in journalism. There's not a narrator. It's this kind of personalist voice almost. So I felt very much the present of a narrator here. I felt this animating intelligence mm-hmm. throughout. And in fact, when we talk about the other poem, it's one of the things I think that distinguishes these two poems is this incredibly unifying voice. Mm-hmm. So that's really interesting to me because I believe that some of these are verbatim quotes. They feel like verbatim quotes. As a journalist, you know, they they feel like it. And she does alternate. Some of them are written in or use slang or use non-standard English. And so you do get a sense of different voices for sure. And they do feel like verbatim quotes, as I said. And yet there's some unifying intelligence. There's a kind of lyricism for lack of a better word that unifies everything it's all very lyrical the language and the voice is quite different from the other poem that we'll read so that makes me very curious about her methods you know you wonder how did she edit the quotes you know how did it but again there's this animating intelligence so she has a feel for certain kind of language the snippets of quotes that we're getting are probably common people speaking in a somewhat uncommon way and she has an ear for that as a poet just as a journalist a good journalist is going to have an ear for that in quotes too you're not going to take the 250 words that someone uttered you're going to take the one sentence that kind of jumps off the page and you you develop an ear for it or an eye for it and so there's a lot in common I think I guess that's what I'm saying between the way that she seems to be working and the way skillful narrative journalist work. Yeah, that's interesting because that was one one thing I wanted to ask both of you was how you felt her quotes if it was she was using it similarly similarly to how you would use it in a reported piece because obviously it's cited differently in a reported piece is very much marked off. Sounds like you're you're saying that you feel like she's using it the same way a journalist would. Julie, how how did you respond to the quotes? Did it feel similar to how you would use quotes in a reported piece or read quotes in a reported piece? In radio, we would, I guess there's a similarity in that 
you're really you really want to hear people people in their own voice, truly in their own voice. And generally speaking, the convention in radio stories is that there is always a narrator, almost always a narrator, and that you're you're framing around these really great qu- quotes that ring in your ear and that really that say a lot and you're allowed to use vernacular on the radio because that's how people talk and in print that's not necessarily the case in journalism you you would you generally wouldn't you know in straightforward straight ahead journalism you wouldn't write rootin you would write rooting you would take away a little bit of what it sounds, what that person sounds like. So I guess that there is something very much like radio that's happening with this poem. Uh, it's like Vox Pop, you know, except that if if I wanted to, if we wanted to, you could almost go through this using radio, using the metaphor of radio for a moment. You really could go through this and tell which of this is going to be the ra- reporter if you if you study it, and then which are them, which are going to be bits of sound. It's like a um, mm-hmm. And there are, are a couple of mysteries, though. So in most cases, lines like the men like the young and the restless, the women like guiding light. You know, you that's the narrator, right? And you, we can tell when it's not the narrator. But then there's this really interesting line: everybody likes Jackie Collins. And it's interesting because you have the men like the young and the restless, the women like. The Guiding Light, the women like Nora Roberts and John le Carre, the men like Louis Lamar. I don't have that line on Daniel my... Steele. Right. And then this line, everybody likes Jackie Collins. That We cannot tell whether that's the narrator repeating or continuing this list in a way or whether that's a quote because it's in not everybody. That's, so that's intriguing. It's a mystery line. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out because there's definitely those points, like you said, where it blurs, right? So we get, and I think that's part of what's happening in this project, why at once you have that unifying feeling, this unifying voice, but still the um, the voices of the people who are being interviewed are very much in the forefront as well. And because we do have places where the, the convention drops, you know, but it, it's flowing right in. Everybody likes Jackie Collins. Definitely sounds like that. That must be a quote, right? But after following through a list of observations and without it being cited or acknowledged as a quote in any way, it just all blurs together, right? Um, great. Well, why don't we go? Since we've sort of alluded to the other <laughs> other poem, why don't we bring that in and then we can do sort of a comparison? So the other poem is from a collection "Shut Up, Shut Down" by Mark Novak, and it's in the section "Capitalization." And one thing, just to point out, what is particularly interesting or marks this as documentary is that this is a collection with a work cited <laughs> page. So at the end of the the a series, and this is a book made up of several series, and at the end of each series, there's a work cited, so you can actually go back and see much of the text was taken from articles from the Washington Post, or perhaps we'll hear it as we read it, the different different text as well. Connie, why don't you go ahead and read this, and this is poem seven from the series Capitalization. As tensions grew yesterday in the air traffic controller's mortal struggle with the Reagan administration, it was increasingly clear that the strike has become a psychological touchstone for frustrated employees in other federal unions and could set the tone for government labor relations for some time. 
Capitalize government when used synonymously with the U.S. government. Before quitting, I talked to the personnel manager, Johnny Schaefer. I can remember going up to him, I had more guts than brains, saying, I'd like a leave of absence. The federal unions represent a vast array of occupations, from nurses and clerks to metal workers and machinists. Do not capitalize government when referring to that of a state in the United States or that of any possession of the United States. Further, the government is in effect a right-to-work state in which workers can't be compelled to join and pay dues. When he asked me why, I told him the truth, that we were opening up a union office. Capitalize Commonwealth, Confederation, Powers, Union, etc., if used with proper names or as proper adjectives. Capitalize Union of Soviet Socialist Republic. He said, you know we can't give you a leave of absence for that. It just isn't our policy. Capitalize Constitution. Also act, bill, code, law, report, and treaty with a name or number to designate a particular document are capitalized. And you know you're never going to succeed. They've tried it before. Years ago there had been a strike at Westinghouse that was broken. There was bloodshed. Capitalize Smith Act. Thank you. Definitely a very different tone from C.D. Wright's poems. Connie, you had started to, to mention earlier you felt the, the narrator, you felt a sense of a, a unifying voice differently in this poem. Could you elaborate on that? Well, there's, there's three, I, there are kind of three different voices or perspectives, I guess you could say, in this poem. And listeners won't see it on the page, but the three different perspectives are differentiated by typeface. So one is italicized, one is Roman, and one is in boldface. So we kind of, there are these three different voices that interweave or are braided throughout the piece. And we, as a reader, we, we, we are, those are signaled to us. And I, in analyzing those three, the, one of them is written in the third person. And it is, it could not be more journalistic. And I, in fact, I wrote, this is the first lines of this are like, we've got the who, what, when, where, why of a Washington Post lead. And it, and it, it just reads like, a Washington Post lead. And the different sentences that continue throughout, that are sprinkled throughout in that typeface, all read the same way. And it's the absolute, objective, depersonalized, detached voice of newspaper reporting. And then there's the second voice, which is written in the, imper- it's in the imperative mood, the bossy voice, but it's like some sort of like icky grammar teacher or copy editor telling us when to capitalize, what to capitalize, and what not to capitalize. And with no feeling at all, it reads like a dictionary, except that it's bossier than a dictionary. And then the third voice is this incredibly human voice written in the third per- in the first person. It almost sounds like a character in a David Mamet play. So we have a character, a real human character, speaking in the first person, recounting something that happened to him. And there's some some emotion there in that he's trying to start a union and there's this dialogue. So it's almost like we have a play cut up and sprinkled into a Washington Post article, only somehow someone's taken a dictionary and thrown that into. There's less of a unifying intelligence in the sense that there's less ambiguity. We absolutely know which voice it is. It, it's They're distinct. The three are distinct. They're telegraphed through di- different changes in language, different changes of point of view, and different changes of type fi- typeface. And there isn't, to my view, there isn't this kind of overarching lyrical narrator 
and and moments where we're not sure who's talking, mm-hmm. where there was that in the CD write poem. Definitely, yeah. Like you said, that's one of the key differences is that when we switch point of view or we speak switch speaker and. In the case of this text, probably also switch the source of the original text. It's made very clear to the reader, whereas with CD-Write, it was very much blended together. Julie, how did having this clear distinction between the text or drawing on other text, did that change the way you interacted with this? Did it feel, I don't know, less of a poem to you, or did it feel different to you in any way? It was harder for me to attach to this one. I mean, that might be intentional. I mean, it's a very dense... It's a very dense poem. There's a lot here. And just looking at it, it's just very dense. There's many, many, many sentences all kind of smashed together. And I feel like starting it with this very newscast kind of style and then having basically, I kind of thought of that as a copy editor telling me like, yeah, you made a mistake. Capitalized government. You know, those are the kind of voices that you for pleasure turn away from I wouldn't turn to those if you know so I think it but the bold is where we have the first person and where the characters are and so that's another way that you can kind of stay attached because that is a way to skim and to know you get a sort of reward coming and you're going to be back with that first person and you're going to get back into the story because that's actually the story is that first person. You said that this poem felt much more dense to you, and I think that is really true because uh, Novak has more of a thesis statement, so to speak. He has a very clear point of view, has a you know an agenda. Maybe that has a negative connotation, but he definitely has something he wants you to walk away with. He wants you to understand labor rights, how it connects to real people's lives, and you know perhaps also think how our relationship to government affects uh, our beliefs towards workers' rights and how everyday workers are are affected by that. So he he wants you to understand something very specific that he's trying to convey in in the poem. Whereas C.D. Wright, it's a little bit more like trying to paint a picture of an experience. In this case, too, Novak didn't do his own reporting, right? He's taking this from other sources. As reporters, how, how does knowing that this comes from other sources or other reported sources, does that change your relationship to the poem at all? Well, I, I just think that the poem is about the dehumanization of capitalism. And so that's the subject. And I think it's effective. He uses very dehumanizing language and juxtaposes that with very human language. And so I think it works for me. It's a great point that in this sense, uh, Novak is trying to present the dehumanization and we feel an absence of a speaker, so to Mm -hmm. speak. (laughs) Whereas in C.D. Wright's, she is really actively humanizing the prisoners and we feel very present, a speaker, Mm -hmm. a unifying force. And so... So I'm wondering, I mean, I'm very fascinated in this presence or absence of a speaker because I feel like that is so present in journalism. I know when I read a newspaper article, sometimes I'll be surprised if I feel, you know, the journalist makes a a statement that sounds subjective. But but then conversely, like you were pointing out in radio, the the narrator is so so present. So what what is the role of a narrator in, in these poems and in journalism in general? Well, I just wanted to say that it's funny to think of this 
particular poem as pieces of journalism because it is actually, in fact, pieces of yeah. journalism. <laughs> but what is the role of the narrator? I mean, it's a really interesting thing. It's an interesting question, and it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately, personally, with the way that I'm working on some new material where I was trying to do work on it without a narrator. So only use the voices and sounds of the people I'm, the stories that I'm telling and the the people that I'm recording. And I just played around with that. That's a very, 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 very hard thing to do. But in fact, that means that the narrator is invisible, right? You have a very, you have to really craft that kind of thing. And what I found when I listened to what I made was, I was like, something isn't right. It's falling flat. Something is missing. And I realized that it was me. Mm-hmm. And that it, what it really needed was me to tell the story. The narrator is the link between all of the pieces. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you really, really need that. You know, it's funny, too, thinking about the Novak piece, which certainly is, is absent of a narrator, but just thinking as you were talking about, as you were crafting and pulling out these quotes, same way here, there's an author pulling out these quotes and intentionally choosing them. So there's this sort of in-between where you don't feel any human connection, but yet there obviously is someone crafting what you're, what you're reading and, and collaging it all together, but yet standing in the background. Whereas, you know, with uh, C.D. Wright, I, I think she definitely is struggling with this uh, and trying to think about, well, what is my place? There's no way for me to cut myself out, so I might as well put myself in. <laughs> I have some thoughts about this. First of all, I think there's there's a cliche about journalism. And and so journalism is actually a very broad category, and there are a lot of different kinds of journalism. The first role, in a way, I think, of a journalist is to be a phenomenally good listener. In the reporting, there's a way that you have to sort of put yourself in your pocket. And your role is to really listen, to ask good questions, and to hear what people are telling you because you're trying to learn something that you don't know. And so in the reporting, it's very much about not necessarily being egoless or selfless, but, but listening very well. And you, but you do have to bring yourself into the interview because you have to connect with people. You have to have people warm up to you, get to trust you, build confidence in you. So... Your personness is very much part of the interview, but in a way, the interview or the reporting is about listening, which is, I think, very much what C.D. Wright is doing. She's she's listening. She's got a reporter's notebook out, and she's collecting information. Then when you go back to write the story, you, you have a whole bunch of paths you can go down. You can go down. You can say, I'm really just here to report the news, and the people who are going to read read my piece or listen to my radio piece need information, and my job is to get out of the way and give them the information in the most economical and efficient way possible. And so you have a tradition in journalism of this kind of objectivity or the narrator, the journalist not being in the story because that's not the point. Totally different when you're writing for a magazine. Mm -hmm. Completely different when you're writing for a book then you want there needs to be an animating intelligence there is a narrator and in a way you can think of it going from an article to a story what's the difference between an article and a story well a story is told by a storyteller that's the narrator so stories can be driven by plot or events stories can be event driven which is your typical news story or and some sort of plot and that's the story 
But anytime you start stretching out and doing something long, it's a, it's a yarn told by a storyteller. And so every journalist has to think about this question, like, who am I? Who am I as the narrator? What's my role? And it's not that different from being a poet. And then I think looking at these two pieces, Novak's, I mean, I don't know, but he's not in it. He's very much in it because it's very polemical. He's not listening to people. He's not really doing reporting. He has something that he wants to say, and he's taking things and using them in such a way to make his point. So he is there as a narrator in a strange way, but not in the conventional sense of a narrator. But he is an animating intelligence for sure. Whereas C.D. Wright is literally gathering stuff, listening, sifting, I'm sure, selecting, and then present in the use of language because she's not not using these other segments of quoted material so actually as um you're talking it, it made me think as you're pointing out there's these different modes of journalism that can alter the way you as a journalist then report the story or how you you relate to it and similarly these poems they are very different in mm-hmm. style but but both the poets are have perhaps different aims or have used different tactics with right doing conducting interviews being a listener and really you feel that in her work and with Novak sort of looking broader and taking pieces from reported stories from testimonies to piece together and make it clear like a theme or an issue he sees in the greater world and trying to express that feel so just like in journalism you have different modes of reporting these poets have different modes of presenting what they what they want to say or what they want to convey about the world but still both doing some kind of reporting action, right? And I guess that's what sort of links them together, though it manifests quite differently. Well, let's see, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you guys want to add before we wrap up? Do you, do you feel threatened by poets reporting? <laughs> oh, no, not at all. No, in absolutely no way. There's there's room for, for all sorts of reporters in the world, yeah. <laughs> Great, all right. Thank you so much for, for being on the show, and thank you for speaking, and thanks to everyone for listening. Mm-hmm.